What is social housing? Uh. Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I am your host, Shane Phillips. Each episode, we discuss a different housing research paper with its author, mostly in regular human language without all the jargon, with the goal of better understanding the causes and potential solutions to the housing crisis. Our guest this episode is Professor Magda Maui of the University of Sergi Paris, and our resident guy who's super curious about international housing policy, Pavo Monkinen, is my co-host. Our subject this time is social housing, something that most housing advocates feel positively toward, even though few can agree on what it actually means, at least here in the US. But France definitely knows what social housing is, and in recent years they've been building a lot. That's thanks in part to SRU, a 20-year-old law that requires many French municipalities to hit a target of 25% social housing. Magda's research paper focuses on one element of the SRU law, a fee that's levied against cities that don't hit their 25% target, and how effective that has been. As with our other international episodes, we of course take the opportunity here to learn as much as we can from a local expert on housing policy in France. We review some of their history, including a period of divestment in public housing and a shift toward favoring home ownership that will sound very familiar to North American listeners, and more recently, their reorientation back towards social housing and the public good, and commitments to seriously addressing the segregation and concentration of poverty that have defined French suburbs for decades. Our previous episodes on Japan and Thailand hold really valuable lessons for us here in North America, but France's approach is one that might feel more familiar and maybe more easily adapted to a Western context. We're sure you're going to find it interesting. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. If you've been enjoying the show, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a review. And you can email me at shanephillips at ucla.edu with comments or guest ideas. Here's Professor Magda Maui. Our guest this week is Magda Maui, adjunct professor at the University of Sergi Paris, and a little bit closer to home, a recent graduate of Columbia University with a PhD in urban planning. Prior to being in New York, she was originally based in Paris as a civil servant, and her research looks at how politics and power relations have shaped affordable housing outcomes in historically disinvested neighborhoods in both France and America. So we are continuing our world tour in this episode with a conversation about social housing policy in France, which has seen some, I think, notable successes in recent years, but faces plenty of challenges as well. Magda, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I love the podcast and I'm really thrilled to talk to you guys today about my research. Thank you so much. And Pavo, hello. Hey Shane, how's it going? Welcome, Magda. I'm very excited. I was very excited to discover your research. Uh, hat tip to Arthur Acolin, who, who pointed me to it, because I think, you know, the, the topic is super important for two kind of themes in California housing conversations around um, affirmatively furthering fair housing and kind of desegregation, as well as this idea of social housing being beneficial. So I think it's going to be a really useful conversation for our, for our listeners. I'm grateful for the invitation and also thrilled of having this very, very timely conversation with you guys. So we'll get to all that. To start, though, we'd love to have you tell us a bit about Paris and some of the favorite places uh, for you in the city. Since you've also lived in New York while you were at Columbia, I think we'd both be interested to hear your thoughts on kind of how the two cities compare 
you know, for better and for worse? Yeah, um, I love the question. So I'd say that my version of Paris would probably add a bit of texture to uh, that recent popular show that everybody's talking about, the Emily in Paris show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with a place that I really recommend. It's like a snapshot of what I feel is Parisian um, lifestyle without the cliches. So it's in Basson de la Villette. Uh, in the eastern 19th arrondissement of Paris. It has been very dear to me since I was a child. So picture a portion of a canal which um, is bordered by tons of bike lanes, um, cafe terraces, two public cinemas are very cheap facing each other, old people playing bocce, uh, kids and puppies playing in public playgrounds, um, a soccer field that's overlooking the water. I mean, all of that... Also, because we're housers, uh, you know, set in the middle of the utmost version of social mix because you have, you know, the top condos that overlook the canal. Uh, you have student housing, senior housing, uh, ground floor social housing units that are, you know, added to the mix. And somehow this is not cliche at all. It's just this essence of Paris life, um, also very ethnically and socioeconomically diverse. And I just, think it's a perfect snapshot. I would, of course, if you were to visit me, uh, take you to some other must-see landmarks, like the Musée d'Orsay, my favorite museum, perfect mm-hmm. to tell you about, you know, Paris modernization, hospitalization, um, and all kinds of later transformations throughout the 20th century. I would show you a 360-degree view of Paris from the Hill of Montmartre or the Parc de Belleville. And then, of course, because we love housing, I would probably take you to housing projects that I think are historic heritage gems. Uh, For instance, the Arc de Flandre in the 19th arrondissement. If you want to feel like you're in Blade Runner, I would show (laughs) you the the modernist nuage towers in the banlieue of Nanterre, or maybe the Espace d'Abraxas because uh, they were designed by Ricardo Bofill and he just passed away. In terms of your second question about how the two cities compare, I thought about it a lot because, of course, you know, the two cities have been my back and forth for the past now six, seven years, uh, very dear to me. And the first thing I came up with was sort of a joke. You know, I was like, Paris has better bread and New York has better beaches. <laughs> and then I thought that's not enough. So I thought about New it York more. New York has better from... beaches? I guess Paris doesn't really have exactly. a beach. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> yes. where the joke is. <laughs> not, a, not a high bar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was trying to think about it from, you know, sort of a, a perspective of what interested me also intellectually. It's it's I was thinking of this book by Daniel Rogers, the historian who wrote Atlantic Crossings, and he writes something comparing New York and Paris and also describing the policy transfers that really shaped progressive politics in the two places. And mm-hmm. he says one finds oneself pulled into an intense transnational traffic in reform ideas, policies, and legislative devices. And that would be me, basically, and also a lot of people who try to navigate the two places. Um, maybe three important key points just to situate the audience about the comparison between the two cities that also mm-hmm. sort of can be generalized to France and the U.S. Um, housing-wise, there is a lot of less affordable housing in New York. Um, and it's more concentrated, you know, compared to Paris. Right. Although, of course, New York is an outlier when it comes to the preservation of its public housing, uh, when we compare it to equally large cities like, say, Chicago. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it did not really survive or escape, rather, the trends of restructuring, state retreats in affordable housing provision, which have characterized the American context. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the second important point to again add to the to the panorama is a socioeconomic perspective. New York is characterized by higher levels of income and racial inequality, and also residential segregation. Whereas Paris does not really follow, for instance, the same central city versus suburb framework that we see more in the U.S. Uh, on the contrary, and I'll come back to it later, uh, most French cities almost have the opposite sort of uh, difference or dichotomy. They have prosperous urban cores, and then they concentrate in the suburbs very high levels of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And then the last sort of point to summarize this panorama would be market dynamics. You know, due in part to the larger role of the private sector, New York's housing market has been more dynamic in terms of rapidly rising prices. But then Paris is characterized by um, more construction. New York's housing market is more market driven. Um, It has a smaller share of its housing being developed by the public sector, and we'll get back to that later. And that's in part also associated with the fact that the private sector, you know, plays a bigger role in building housing in general and then affordable housing specifically. As a matter of fact, my dissertation was comparing upzoning programs in both places. And mm-hmm. so really this connection between public private sector in both places, I could talk about it for days, but I'm going to stop here. <laughs> and yeah. So your paper is titled The SRU Law, 20 Years Later, Evaluating the Legacy of France's Most Important Social Housing Program, and it was published in Housing Studies just last year. I guess first, can you tell us what SRU Law stands for, uh, what the French translation of that is? Yeah, absolutely. So we call it SRU Law for the purpose of the podcast and usually just to talk about it in, in English, but it stands for the Loi Solidarité et Renouvellement Urbain, um, which would translate roughly as law for solidarity and urban renewal, not the kind of urban renewal that we historically know <laughs> or associate with American history. But, right. you know, I'll go come back to, to that later. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And I think your pronunciation of that just illustrated why I did not even try. So I'm going to avoid <laughs> French words as much as possible here. So the SRU law was intended to encourage social housing development in municipalities across the country as a way to reduce segregation in particular, and its ambitious goals were later complemented by financial penalties for at least a subset of cities that weren't hitting their targets. And, you know, one might expect that those fees would motivate those cities to build more. But in fact, you find that after the fee went into place, municipalities that were subject to it saw their social housing stock grow more slowly than in places that were exempt from the fee. So, That raises, I think, a lot of interesting questions about the use of different strategies to change behavior, be they incentives or penalties or mandates. And as you discuss in your paper, it also illustrates how much other factors like political leadership really weigh heavily on these outcomes. As you put it, beyond the adoption of a national fee for noncompliant municipalities, Social housing production trends are impacted by the types of land use ideologies in place in municipalities, be they pro-social housing or exclusionary. So in the show notes, we're going to include two articles in addition to Magda's, one published for the Brookings Institution by Arthur Aquilin, who was already mentioned, and that's about France's rental housing market. And the other is in the International Journal of Housing Policy and written by Yona Freemark, And it's specifically about the country's success at doubling housing production in the Paris region. 
To give our listeners some of that additional context, I'll quickly share a few facts from Arthur's paper, and we'll come back to Yona's later after we've talked about um, Magda's work. So first is, and, and Magda touched on this a little bit, is just the sheer scale of public sector involvement in the French housing market, with about 40% of renters living in public housing of some kind. In the U.S., I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but I imagine it's closer to 2 to 5%, depending on yeah. how you define public housing. Something um, like that. Yeah, public housing, you know, whether you include low-income housing tax credit units, even with those, um, we're still not very high. Public housing isn't just for low-income households in France. More than three quarters of French households were eligible for some form of public housing in 2013. Renters in France receive a lot more government support than in the U.S., and even in the private rental market, only about one-fifth of French renters in the bottom income quintile pay more than 40% of their income on rent, compared to nearly 50% of U.S. renters in that bottom fifth. As I suspect will be important to this conversation, a lot of French public housing is concentrated in mid-rise and high-rise buildings at the outskirts of metro areas, and due in part to the SRU law we'll be talking about, France has built about 1.8 million social housing units between 2001 and 2019, or about 100,000 per year. For comparison, the low-income housing tax credit in the U.S. also builds about 100,000 low-income units per year, but we also have five times the population of France. France has a generous rent assistance program funded at about $16 billion per year, while the U.S. spends about $24 billion on tenant-based housing vouchers uh, through the Housing Choice Program. But despite all of these supports for renters, homeownership is still quite popular in France, and almost 60% of French households own their homes, compared to just about two-thirds, or I think around 65% of U.S. households. A few more here. Uh, French <laughs> renter households are far more stable in their housing, with a median length of residence of six years compared to just two years in the U.S. And in a similarity to Japan... And in contrast to the U.S., over 90% of private rental units in France are owned by individual rather than institutional investors. And finally, unsurprisingly, France also has very strong tenant protections. Landlords have to offer lease terms of at least three years. That was news to me. And many metropolitan areas have rent control. And also news to me, they have a seasonal eviction moratorium every year, independent of COVID-19, where you basically can't evict someone from the beginning of November to the end of March, which is five months out of the year. So hopefully that gives our listeners some idea of, of how France's housing policy is and its housing market differ from the U.S. in addition to what Magda already shared. Magda, is there anything else that is maybe outside the scope of your paper, but you'd want to add to that list just to give some color to this? Um, yeah, I'm glad to connect my research to such solid papers as those by Arthur Hakonin and Yona Freemark. I'm teaching a course on the very specific topic you summed up very well um, for undergraduates in Sergi Paris University. And I always add to the very sort of comprehensive panorama that you um, described three key trends or three key characteristics um, that we'll just list quickly. The first one is social housing is indeed in large part still concentrated in mid-rise and high-rise buildings at the outskirts of metro areas. But there's also many other typologies of social housing uh, also located in inner city areas. So to give an, an illustration of that trend, 
Um, even the post-war social housing stock is slowly but steadily transforming. Just as an illustration of that, uh, last year's Pritzker Prize was given to um, a couple of architects, Lacaton et Vassal, and their specialty for the past few decades has been designing very cutting-edge, environmentally friendly, um, humane social housing projects. Mm. And there's also this idea that, you know, social housing goes to a lot of uh, middle income or middle class or lower income uh, category, like basically, you know, uh, associated with different types of incomes. But it's also tied sometimes to professions. A lot of social housing is attributed mm, to certain essential professions like, you know, teachers, firefighters, uh, nurses, city agents. That's a big thing as well. Uh, the second trend is social housing is in large part occupied by minorities, so mostly children of immigrants or um, foreign-born residents. In France, it's technically unconstitutional to ask for data on race and ethnicity as part of the census, which makes research on segregation, inequality, uh, discriminations very hard to do. And so in order to sort of approximate this uh, social diversity, uh, what we do is use the percentage of foreign-born in the overall population. Uh, that's how basically we measure diversity. Hmm. Uh, it's through immigration figures. And to give you an overview of the French demographic landscape, um, the share of population that's born abroad is 14%. So largely from two big channels, either neighboring European countries uh, or France's former colonies. Um, so for instance, the larger, the largest, sorry, minority groups uh, right now are Portuguese. And the second one would be the Algerian community, very important historically. I myself, um, for instance, French Algerian. Uh, so I'm a representative of that minority. Uh, the third trend is the context of the pandemic, you know, and I'm sure that here France is not different from the US. Um, we are I think it's a probably different housing. in some ways. <laughs> and, and, and in some ways, I'm, I'm sure, in like in like the safety nets and all kinds of things yeah. for sure. Um, but just keeping it uh, down to the housing construction rhythm or mm -hmm. trends, I think everybody got hit hard. Meaning that yes, France is a model of housing construction, uh, but of course, you know, uh, the pandemic has messed up construction rhythms and growth cycles in France. Uh, a number gives you an idea. In 2017, we were permitting 240,000 units, whereas in 2021, we went, you know, as low as, I mean, as low as 180,000 units. So it's just to give you this, this context, um, against the backdrop of a lot of political transformations, a lot of constant electoral deadlines for over the entire period of the pandemic, municipal, regional, and now presidential elections. And I'm not saying this, like, you know, for no reason, you know, housing is highly political everywhere in France also. And so yeah. this matters in, in, in the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah. So in my class on housing policy, I talk about the kind of fuzzy definition of social housing and like is low income housing tax credit programs, a social housing program and in what ways it is and isn't. So and I, and I talk about French social housing and I sort of divide it between HLM and like the newer style Pritzker Prize winning projects. Is that a fair kind of division? Like the old style is more similar to you, what we think about in terms of big U.S. public housing, um, whereas the new style is social housing associations, um, kind of nonprofit run and higher quality. Yeah, that's a perfect definition. 
I'd say that, you know, a notion that comes up often when we talk about the HLM is the Grands Ensembles. And I think the equivalent of that would be maybe the project as a notion mm-hmm. in, in, in the United States. Um, and then you have that that makes a portion of the housing stock. And then on the other side, you would have, you know, something that's smaller scale and, yeah, definitely more innovative and inventive in terms of designs, but also um, services offered. You know, some of them are intergenerational housing. A lot of components add now uh, environmentally, um, you know, like fleet certified um, Uh uh, construction measures and things like that. Absolutely. Uh And is there this similar tension, I think, in other European countries where, kind of the better quality social housing units are lived in, like given that they're open to higher income groups, is there like a capture of the better quality units by the higher income groups? And is that a, is that an issue? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, the, the trajectory, the residential trajectories of households that occupy those different typologies of housing units, I would say that there is for sure, you know, uh, trends of, of, I would say HLM housing units being more allocated to the lowest income bands. And mm-hmm. then classically or, or in a more common way, you would have newer Pritzker Prize winning projects, <laughs> like you said, um, being taken over by more middle class or upper middle class, even households right. who do not necessarily have the means to go into the private market. Um, right. That is also being sort of fought or corrected by certain measures that have been taken a few years ago where now every project has to, in addition to, I'd say, a number of housing units being built, um, Mm -hmm. include percentages of, so like a third of the project would have to go to the lowest income band categories. Um, Yeah, even the the beautiful ones. Right, basically right. although although everything is beautiful and and i <laughs> and and my message and my fight uh, as somebody who loves you know housing architecture is to say that all the hlms and 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 are very interesting but a lot of them are decaying as well and have right. huge huge maintenance problem you know and, yeah no yeah i mean then we could go off on a whole separate tangent of kind of lovely boring generic housing being superior to the to the fancy bespoke stuff just cuz it can be provided so much more inexpensively. But so there's these three income categories that the social housing system uses. Um, Maybe just kind of mention what they are. And then like, is that what you're talking about in terms of a certain percentage of the new units have to be allocated according to those categories? Yeah, yeah. So there's three income categories that determine the allocation of housing units. Uh, To give you a sample, because again, my research and this program that we're talking about today span from the 2000, year 2000 to today, the balance has been roughly, and and the the balance that makes up the the housing, the social housing stock, is that half of units are for low income categories, uh, which we call PLUS. Um, it's an acronym, you know, everywhere in the world, planners, housers love their acronyms. Um, and then the second category would be approximately a third of the housing stock, and that's for moderate income households. So the PLS category. Uh-huh. And then the remaining 10% would go to um, middle income households who are, in fact, you know, upper class technically compared to the two other ones, but they're still having trouble finding, you know, stability and good access in the private market. So they get this help uh, getting access to the social housing units. So when we're talking about this SRU, it's a certain amount of 
housing units that each municipality has to have that are social housing. So all three of those categories count for that quota? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. that was part of the of the program um, core or essence, not necessarily since the 2000s, but later when it was reformed in 2013, um, mm-hmm. well, most officials realized was we cannot just, you know, give a certain quota of fair share to be mandated or municipalities. We need also to be I use the word qualitative, but I don't think that's necessarily appropriate, but it's more about thinking among these 25%, you know, portion of the housing stock that we're mandating Uh to be social housing, what are we exactly talking about? And so they incorporated this obligation of having a third being, for instance, for lowest income category Mm. uh, households. I see. And we should clarify. So the SRU law, when it initially passed, it said, Every well, many municipalities need to make 20% of their housing stock uh, social housing. That changed, I think you said in 2013, to become 25% by 2025. A couple questions on that. So one is just a quick one about like, are we talking 25% of new housing stock, or do they have to, you know, increase the housing stock uh, so much that 25% of the total is uh is social housing i think the the strictest option and okay okay so (laughs) all of the housing stock has to be okay and then you know i think we we've we've hinted at this a little bit but i think it would be really interesting if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the context and maybe specifically about the bond leos uh and and how they relate to all this and and the the problem trying to be solved in, in that context in particular yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned earlier that most French cities have, you know, prosperous urban cores and they concentrate in their suburbs, very high levels of affordable housing that's built in large housing estates during the post-war period, which we call the banlieue. And the banlieue and their inherited landscapes since the post-war era, not only are they considered by most as, you know, an architectural or a policy failure sometimes. And I'm thinking here of maybe um, movies that the audience might be familiar with. Uh, the movie La Haine, which was released in 1995, which follows, you know, uh, three young friends um, basically during one day in, in, in the banlieue and what happens to them over the course of that day. Or a more recent movie, which I, I really love because I think it's, it's such a powerful uh, representation of the social ills that are still structuring uh, the neighborhoods located in the banlieues is called Les Miserables, and it's, uh, it was released a couple of years ago. And it tells a similar story, you know, several years later, it tells exactly the same story. It was actually uh, filmed and, you know, directed by people who are part of the same artistic crew and production crew. Um, the banlieue became a symbol of France's social ills, that really illustrate the French nation's inability to basically integrate its immigrants, its minorities. Um, It's also Mm -hmm. representing this stock that's just decaying and not being uh, fixed in a way. You know, think about it. Uh, If I give you a number, 60% of today's social housing uh, located in the banlieues was completed before 1975. So that gives you sort of an idea, you know, they were located in areas that were mostly enclaves, uh, oftentimes food deserts, not really connected to any transportation system. Although that is changing today because a lot has been built and is being built right now 
for instance, in Paris, there's a lot of work around transportation infrastructure. So they were located often in modernist high-rise towers, which we call the Grands Ensembles, and I mentioned that it's sort of the equivalent of the projects in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They were the battlefield of um, highly violent riots in 2005, a moment where really it was sort of an emergency call from residents who just took the streets uh, for the longest time in France history. And, you know, France loves protests, but those were just the longest ones. It, it, it lasted yeah. for weeks and it was just like rising like a fire that took over the entire territory just to say, fix your policies and fix the relationship of the state to uh, the Bonlieu's residents. And so the failure of the dialogue between uh, the state and the residents of these neighborhoods is really a context in which the SRU sort of rises. And so project yourself in the 2000s, uh, take this highly intense context of the banlieues and this context of thinking about their future, add to it longer term trends, uh, a combined relative retreat of the state from social housing production, you know, towards more home ownership opportunities mm-hmm. and subsidies in the 70s, which you already mentioned. Um, also add to it a devolution of housing policy prerogatives to the local and to the municipal levels in the 80s. What happens is political figures, um, you know, particularly on the left, they start announcing that it's necessary to implement a national program uh, aimed at rebalancing the geographic location of social housing units. And that's really when the SRE is born. Um, it was basically a response to growing trends of segregation and concentration of poverty in French cities. That's actually why when I try to define the SRU program, I insist on the fact that it was not to necessarily, of course, it was to accompany in a way, you know, the increase or the growth of the number of social housing units, but it was more about rebalancing, rebalancing geographically and rebalancing of efforts in Mm -hmm. terms of who was doing the job um, and who was, yeah, uh, helping the national effort. I think maybe for the maybe for the listeners, you know, the the closest parallel is Massachusetts 40B, which we talked about in an earlier podcast with Nick Morantz and Echo Jang, and they have this you know idea that 10% of the housing stock in each municipality should be uh, affordable housing. So that's that's mm-hmm. maybe something. But you know, I think it's just so impressive the ambition of this program set out in the year 2000 that that one-fifth of housing in every municipality should be uh, social housing. But it's not every municipality, right? It's it's just urban municipalities because there's like 30-something thousand municipalities and it only applies to a, a fairly small percentage of that. Could you just explain like how the geography plays out? Yes, absolutely. So in France, um, due to many reforms that happened after the 1789 revolution, um, you had this idea that the territory had to be sort of divided into a very equal or sort of spread out system where you would have a lot of municipalities, which means we have 36,000 of them, Hmm. 36,000, sorry. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're a very small country and we have those municipalities and not all of them have to comply with the law. It's approximately less than 2,000 municipalities that have to, that are subject to this program. Hmm. And out of these uh, most of them do the job of, you know, keeping up with the deadlines and the quotas. And then you have a little bit less than 300 that are sort of not working well and not mm-hmm. doing the proper, yeah, just not following the rules or not just meeting the deadlines. Some right. are doing it on purpose and some are really trying hard, but not really managing to do well. And there's two categories mm-hmm. and we'll come back to that 
Yeah, yeah. And this this might actually be the transition for that because your paper is not just about SRU generally, but specifically this Article 55 clause, which is a penalty, a financial penalty for cities that don't hit their 25% target. Not all cities are subject to this fee, but many are. So among these cities that are subject to the SRU law, only a subset of those is actually um, subject to this fee if they're not meeting their target. Can you explain how that works? Who is subject to it? Who is exempt? Yes, absolutely. So like you said, there's this Article 55 fee, which is the, I would say, the stick component to the SRU program. Um, it was an additional component of the law that was added actually two years after 2000 because mm-hmm. officials were thinking we need something. We need a stick. We cannot, you know, the stick and the carrot. I don't know if that's an expression in, in English, but yes. yes yeah. Is, in, in France, uh, actually, before we even talk about the subset, then is there a <laughs> carrot? Or is it? There is no, no. No, okay. You know, French, French style. <laughs> just, we just, we just, we just stick. like to, the sticks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, okay. So, <laughs> uh, so the Article Fifty Five B was this additional component um, that is meant to enforce, and I insist on what I'm going to say right now, in larger urban areas. So that's really mm-hmm. a component that matters. Also, you know, areas that are sort of more tense uh, in terms of their housing market, better connected with a lot of job market dynamics too. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was it was designed to attempt to correct territorial imbalances, like I said, social segregation also. And so it required a little bit less than 2,000 municipalities, counting more than 3,500 inhabitants to mm-hmm. follow the rule. In Paris, this cap of 3,500 inhabitants goes as low as a hundred, uh, sorry, a thousand five hundred, just because we're in such a dense and, you know, very well connected um, right. metropolitan region. And so, yeah, with the Article 55 fee, the stick um, is there to punish those who do not meet the 25 percent quota by a certain three year time period. So every three years, there's a measurement and we check whether the municipalities have you know, obeyed the rule and and followed the law and and met with this quota. Um, I might add, just to clarify to our audience, that there are municipalities that we call exempted municipalities, if I mm-hmm. translate it correctly. Those yeah. are roughly 250, always less than 300. And they're exempt, but just for the following reasons. For instance, there's been an admitted um, observation that there's a low need for social housing or, you know, their municipalities are super isolated from centers of activity and employment or the land is just unsuitable for construction due to, let's say, environmental constraints or um, risk constraint, constraints, generally speaking. So can you tell us how you studied the potential impact of this baton or stick in French? So the way I studied the SRU program was actually not immediately from a quantitative perspective. I was doing um, field work uh, and participant observation with different planners, housing um, experts or advocates and elected officials in the Paris metro region. And one conversation I had at some point with the housing expert at the planning agency of Paris, the APUR, Stéphanie Jonquel, was back in 2017. And she was just telling me about the SRU and how hard it was for everybody to measure its impacts. Everyone has their own view about the SRU, she was telling me, but no person 
properly, you know, did the study of investigating quantitatively or just geographically the um, evolution of housing construction and specifically social housing construction over time to finally have, you know, assessments that were not uh, politically entrenched or, you know, just following an ideology and not necessarily precisely scientific. Uh, but she also advised me to not start this project because it was just, you know, <laughs> French data, French data. I should, I can't complain for hours about that, but French data is really, really hard to collect and get access to. So to mm. collect because sometimes there's stuff that's so, you know, yeah, it has to be anonymized and, um, you know, access to it is highly expensive and sometimes just not available for people who are uh, academic researchers or just think tank researchers also. And so it, it makes it impossible to get access to it. And also once you get access to it, you're not allowed to use it or, you know, study it or analyze it uh, in places that are random. You have to use a computer that's, you know, fingerprint uh, uh, accessible. Wow. And it's really, you feel like you're in um, a James Bond movie sometimes. And so once I managed to, you know, assemble this data set, I set out to develop a research design. And the idea was that I would think of a difference in differences methodology because I thought this would be the perfect way or, you know, a perfect match between a methodology and the case study or the theme studied. Um, and so the treatment group that I looked at comprised municipalities that were subject to the Article 55 fee, while the control group comprised municipalities exempt from paying the fee. The timeline was spanning from 1996 to 2017 because of availability of data. And 2002 was my before after limit, which is the year when the Article 55 fee was put in effect. Um, mm -hmm. The hypothesis uh, that guides this paper is that change in production of social housing would be positive and bigger in the treatment group compared to changes in the control group. So, yeah, so the result was a surprise because my findings underscored how um, after the passage of the Article 55 fee, municipalities that were subject to the fee have built less social housing than municipalities that are exempt relative to before the enactment of the law. So my study was measuring more the effectiveness of that specific fee. And what it underscored was not necessarily that the SRA program is not a success. I do believe it's a success. And I do uh, underscore that there has been a rebalancing of housing construction units overall. But mm -hmm. what I insist on is maybe let's qualify the fact that the Article 55 fee is a strong uh, enforcement of, you know, this idea of mandating housing units or the 25% housing unit portion in municipalities. Maybe the Article 55 fee could be strengthened. Maybe there's, you know, this we're always thinking in housing policy that things work not when you just pick one specific fee or one specific program and make it all powerful. Right. It's, 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 it's the whole toolbox, right? It's, it's the purpose of, of what we try to think about is what is the perfect mix and match of things that are going to really make a place a success story, be it a municipality, mm -hmm. be it a region, be it a nation. And so, yeah, that was my, my biggest takeaway was, um, also because I was sort of uh, measuring the correlation of 
social housing construction uh, variations linked to things like income or, you know, uh, political affiliation. Because as a reminder, 71% of municipalities are not building social housing units reaching the quotas are required of them mm-hmm. are right wing or extreme right wing. And that's that's really also what set off my excitement and dedication to finding all the data. I was just because I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you're trying to figure out why they didn't build the social housing, even if they were having to pay a fee. And some of the explanations are these are rich right wing municipalities that don't mind paying a fee, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, part of it is because, and of course, there's a whole conversation we could have about this of does it factor, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's based, of course, on their um, political values and sort of ideological lens. I, I talk about um, ideologies. Uh, they're going to think that it's um, cheaper for them to just not build social housing units and right. not welcome uh, lower income minority households that they think right. are undesirable. Uh, and, and, and in their calculations are going to think that let's not add that to the equation. But I'm also questioning the fact that the Article 55 fee might be higher, might be increased. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. and I'm not the only one thinking that. On the subject of the, the, the fee amount and how much it's raising and how much it's costing these cities, like whether it's enough to change behavior, you report in your paper that these fees can amount to 5%, up to 5% of a municipality's operating budget. That sounds like a lot to me. Um, I don't know if maybe it's not as much as it sounds like because a lot of costs are covered, you know, by higher levels of government, including the national government. But, you know, interested if you can reflect on that a little bit, like why maybe this isn't really enough to change behavior. But also, I think this there's just an interesting conversation to have here about whether the goal even necessarily is to to change behavior, to have these cities build you know, all the way up to their level, because I think in the paper you say the fee that is charged, it goes toward housing purposes. And so, you know, as an analog here in uh, North America, we talk about vacancy taxes a lot. And I use Vancouver as a case study very often where they have a vacancy tax there for long-term vacant housing. It's put some homes back on the market, But the main effect has not actually been to reduce vacancy, but to just generate a lot of revenue. And then that revenue can do to, you know, good things, including build income restricted housing, social housing, what have you. So I'm curious, like, if if that debate is happening in France, or if it's more just like, no, we need to make sure all of these cities fall in line. And uh, this, this is really just a stick. We're not trying to, it's not about doing positive things with the money. It's about forcing cities to comply. I think you pointed to the right uh, sort of intuition when you said that many services are provided through national taxes and programs. So, yeah, I'm going to just outline to you how I would describe it. It's not nothing, you know, the Article 55 fee collecting 77 million euros relatively to the French context. We're talking about a program that's targeted at less than 2000 municipalities. And then less than 300 municipalities are non-compliant and get taxed. And the fee can indeed amount to 5% of a municipality's operating budget. Uh, but French municipal budgets are considerably smaller than their American equivalents relative to their, to their population, in part because higher levels of government 
are paying indeed for services such as public schools. Uh, so that means that it raises less money than say if we were in an American context. I don't know if that yeah. already hints to sort of, yeah, putting back in context a few of the numbers. Yeah. You say in the in the paper that the average non-compliant city that's paying this fee, the budget for those cities is about 1100 euro per resident. Um, and on average for France, it's 700 per resident for the municipal budget. Here in Los Angeles, city of Los Angeles, our general fund is somewhere in the order of $3,000 per resident. Santa Monica is about eight or 9,000 per resident in their general fund. So much larger, but you know, it's mm -hmm. not because our government is spending so much more kind of in mm -hmm. aggregate, it's just distributed differently and a lot more is, is spent at the local level as opposed to higher levels of government. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's very it's a, it was a very good question because it, it it I think it puts in perspective some of the numbers, but also to sum it up, yeah, they're willing to pay the price. You know, I, I'm I'm insisting on the fact that um, interesting reform for again a program that I think is a success would be to strengthen this fee or you know part of the fee at some point um, in terms of. Once the state started understanding that some municipalities were, were just fine paying the fee, they thought, okay, we're just going to multiply it up to maybe five times sometimes in certain contexts, but that's not really enforced. So a number I have for you is rarely do the um, amounts of fees are taken from the municipalities multiplied by more than three, never reaches five. And also... Another sort of component that was that is part of this Article 55 fee component is the prefects who are at a higher state of government intervening at the municipality level and taking over the prerogative of giving construction permits. You know, that's the biggest prerogative when you talk about planning and housing at the municipal level is having the this power to give or deny the construction permit. And technically, the fee has added or associated possible multiplication of the fee combined with the prefects coming in, basically like sheriffs and being like, OK, I'm taking <laughs> your uh, toy away from you and you're not allowed to give the permits anymore. But that has been done only on 11 municipalities. So just to give you yeah. a number, we could do more of that. And uh -huh. and. Which California is is doing a lot of that kind of thing is, with our housing yeah. accountability unit and a lot more enforcement and oversight than we've we've had in the past, even though we've had a lot of these laws in the books for for decades. Sounds like a similarity there. But, and we had the same a similar discussion a couple of years ago at the state level in terms of adding a fee or taking away some kinds of transportation funding to certain municipalities if they're not meeting their obligations. But I mean, I do like the idea of having a fee as as in addition to the to the taking away. Uh, local powers to some extent, and then using that money for social housing. I mean, it, it, it seems like a win-win there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just going to add that the fact that you mentioned sheriff was very appropriate because in your paper, you describe these cities as outlaw municipalities. And here in California, we would just call them like non-compliant cities or something boring like that. So I, I think I scofflaw prefer... has been used, but <laughs> scofflaw is, scofflaw is, is yeah. inferior to outlaw. I think we need to strengthen our language a little yeah. bit, though. And maybe that's a good segue into the about the media. I mean, I think the role of the media is really interesting in this, in this sure. issue. I'm going to uh, just comment on the outlaw municipalities. It's so funny that you asked me about this uh, translation that I use, the outlaw municipalities. I was mm -hmm. 
you know, the direct translation in my defense is commune hors la loi. That's how we refer to them. And I do remember, you know, one housing studies reviewer telling me that my translation sounded like it was straight out of a Sergio Leone movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was indeed following the lingo that's used in France. Uh, you have practitioners who refer to these municipalities as recalcitrants, so recalcitrants. Uh, mm-hmm. Advocacy groups, affordable housing developers, nonprofits, they call them usually um, the outlaw municipalities. And then the media call them altogether mauvais élèves, bad pupils. Um, I do think that <laughs> the, the bad pupils like are, too. you know, it's, it's very patronizing. Yeah, <laughs> it's very pro- but at the same time, you know, when, when you have the media call them bad pupils, bratty children, stuff like that, I think that it just um, takes away the accountability and yeah. agency mm, yeah. of. Municipalities are just choosing to allocate their budgets in a certain way to just push away lower income minority households, to put it bluntly. Exclusionary is better, probably. Yeah. Right, right. But it's true that The Outlaws is very like Western movie style. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a way, I think, to, at some point you asked me about the purpose of the Article 55 fee and in connection with this, this sort of name that I use, it's, it's to rebalance and sort of call upon the municipalities that are doing, for instance, 0% social housing. There are places in the French Riviera that have 0% uh, social housing and they're on the list of places mm-hmm. that have to do the work. And I think it sort of creates a bridge with the case studies that you use, Pavo, in your study on um, the um, uh, California housing element, where you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, Palos Verdes and Bever- Beverly Hills. They're like Kafkaesque in their way of dealing with uh, social housing quotas and talking about, you know, the potential and the future potential, which makes me think of science fiction more than policymaking. But <laughs> yeah, so I think there's bridges there. Yeah, it seems like France's policy, similar to 40B, is is much more based on outcomes as opposed to just planning for the future. And if it comes to pass, that's great. But if it doesn't, like, no, no, you know, that's not our fault. I, I did want to dwell on on the media a little bit more. You know, here in California, there's definitely been more attention to our regional housing needs assessment program, um, which allocated much higher uh, uh, housing targets throughout the Southern California in particular. And even prior to that, you kind of saw media paying attention to this whole eight-year housing element planning process and this idea that certain cities were meeting uh, their goals and others were not. Has that shifted in France? Like, has it changed over time? And do you see the media actually influencing this? Or is it just kind of commentary and and not really changing behavior necessarily? Yes. um, So, of course, you know, when the media talk about bratty kids or about pupils, I don't think that the right wing mayor of Nice in the French Riviera or the mayor of Le Valois-Péret outside of Paris, Patrick Balkany, who's facing prison charges for corruption really care about what the media think of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, probably not so different from the politics of affordable housing of, say, Huntington Beach in Orange County or Palos Verdes or Beverly Hills or Westchester in New York. Um, But at the same time, I think that the question of media shaming matters. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm again going to do a bridge with the two countries. Uh, it matters more for those mayors who claim to be pro-affordable housing liberals, uh, but they do not really walk the walk. Uh, they mm. do not effectively remove all the barriers to, to build more affordable housing. So like a, 
LA Eric Garcetti or, you know, Lori Lightfoot or, and I would say in France, an example of that is in Brittany in the metropolitan region of um, Rennes, which had, so to give you a sense of how it functions, it was an aggregation of different uh, municipalities that came together and sort of, I don't know if the word incorporated works here, but incorporated into a larger metropolitan region. And yeah, the shaming worked for those mm-hmm. portions of this newly created metro region that were mm-hmm. not following the rules and hoping, you know, to sort of escape or find a loophole. So I think that's an example of that because there were sort of a this this typology of uh, elected officials, I'd say. But of course, at the end of the day, what matters is not just media shaming. You know, it's increase of the fee, uh, more systematic enforcement of eminent domain, for instance, that combined with the media shaming has been the equation or algorithm that really works. Yeah. And I think to start to close this out, maybe we can talk about where there has been, you know, really significant success and progress. And so we can turn to Paris here. And I think there's been real success with housing production generally and social housing in particular just in the past, you know, decade or so. And I have, again, some stats and context really quickly from Yona Freemark's paper, like the US and much of the developing world, or developed world rather, housing production in the Paris region fell from the 1980s to the 2000s. It fell from about 47,000 units to 37,000 units per year. Not a huge fall, but it is a decline. And its share of the national population also substantially dropped as the national population grew. So Again, pulling from Yona's paper, he notes that uh, some shifts with a new Paris mayor in 2001 and, and Nicolas Sarkozy as president in 2007 both had more of an emphasis on housing. So that played a role and their efforts took a while to bear fruit. But housing production in the Paris region began to really gather momentum around 2015 or so. And from 2017, to 2019, the region built over 80,000 units per year on average. That's not just social housing, but about a third of that was social housing. And again, that's in comparison to 37,000 units per year uh, in the the 2000s. That increase also, to your point, was disproportionately in sort of the inner suburbs rather than the outer suburbs um, where it had been traditionally. Yona attributes this to four strategies pursued simultaneously, not just one thing. But he says, you know, one was a focus on affordable or social housing. Another was the harnessing of public land. The third was financial and regulatory incentives to make it easier to build housing targeted to various income levels. And then fourth was enforcement policies like the SRU and the Article 55 clause implemented by the national and regional governments to share the task of increasing production so, you know, you're based in Paris. I imagine you know it as well as anywhere else, if not better. What's happening there? Can you tell us a little about the story, how things have, have changed there over time? Yeah, it's it's a great um, start. Uh, you know, you summed it up very well with uh, Yona's research paper and this typology of the different tools that combine together make up this, uh, what I would call and what he calls the Paris model or success story kind of. So I know mm-hmm. that, you know, the Paris context is, really probably an oddity in that we have publicly owned housing that forms a large share of rental housing. And then the private rental market locally is really strictly regulated by the national government. That plays a role in the story I'm going to sum up or extend from what you already said. We have a 
mayoral team right now, uh, so not anymore Bertrand Delanoe, who was predecessor to the current mayor, um, Anne Hidalgo. Anne Hidalgo is extremely well known for her transportation policies, which we love her I know, here, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. She's she's big on, on, I mean, her policies are widely discussed on, on Twitter, for instance, and among mm-hmm. different advocacy and policy circles. But I'd say that her deputy mayor of housing is just him and his team are doing fantastic work. And as an example, just to, to summarize the strategy here is to tap into a variety of tools from the housing policy toolbox that is offered in Paris, both at the municipal level, but also enforced by the state. And to do stuff like think through abolishing the ghettos of the rich across the wealthiest arrondissement. So the idea is to secure social housing by prioritizing the city's wealthiest neighborhoods as targets for new social housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you compare it to places like New York, where it's, it's, for instance, harder to think about zoning for more affordability in wealthiest uh, districts or wealthiest portions of the city really in paris it's it's the strategy is to go in 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 that direction very very strongly and very aggressively you add to this a very innovative rent control model which has been in place and is being reinforced as we speak you think also about the i know you had an episode on vacancy and vacancy taxes if i'm Mm. not mistaken Paris has been really at the forefront of the battle against Airbnb a lot of units in the city. You know, we're 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 in the capital city, it's a global city, it's very tense market, super expensive uh, housing stock generally speaking, but there's behind that this whole team of dedicated uh, public sector agents who are really trying to put together a net of things to maintain the middle class and then lower income categories within uh, the city. You, you talk near the end of the article about how France is considering strengthening the SRU law, you know, possibly allowing other levels of government to intervene more directly, or as we mentioned, increasing the Article 55 fee, maybe by up to five times. Do you have any other updates on where those talks are going? Anything since the, the paper even came out, possibly? Yes. Um, so... My paper came out last August, and that was right in the middle of a context of policy reform. Um, there's been a larger sort of omnibus bill. I don't know if that's the correct name for it. Uh, that covers a lot of ground. So it can be, you know, it talks about schools and also trash and transportation infrastructure, mm-hmm. but also it talks about the SRU program. And uh, it was started or launched by the current president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, as a response to the several protests that took place uh, that were led by the Yellow Vest movement against Mm -hmm. the increase of prices like gas prices and all kinds of things that were not meeting their um, the income they got in a way. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, bill that is being evaluated and has been evaluated since last summer includes all kinds of things. But the reform of the SRU would be a strengthening on the one hand. Uh, So, for instance, making it last longer than the expected horizon of it ending in 2025. They want to make it more permanent. That's a great thing. But then on the other hand, uh, something that would be bad is they want to initiate the, uh, you know, a better rebalancing of housing construction trends by capping the best students in a way or the best pupils uh, who are doing more than 40 percent housing stock 
force them to to stop basically building social housing, which, of course, a lot of advocates and uh, leftist elected officials m mobilized against because they said in order to rebalance, you cannot just, you know, cap and stop construction where it's happening. You have to enforce mm -hmm. it in the exclusionary municipalities. So it's being evaluated, studied right now. Um, there hasn't been as of yet a formal announcement. It's just still being evaluated. But that's a big sort of uh, piece of news for the evolution of the SRE program. And I would say, of course, it's also very big in terms of the upcoming elections because, you know, we have right wing and I'm going to just talk about the extreme right wing for a second. We have candidates like Marine Le Pen, you know, the most classic figure of uh, mm -hmm. extreme right in France, but also the new one, uh, Eric Zemmour, who has been very mediatized in France, and I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, both have, you know, zero sort of detailed program of what affordable housing is going to look like if they were to be elected presidents. But both have spoken about the SRU, which to me is very, very illustrative of how critical of a program it is. Uh, Zemmour wants to cancel the program. He just doesn't want social housing to exist anymore. I don't know. That's that's sort of his philosophy around housing. And Marine Le Pen wants to forbid anybody from an immigrant background or who would be foreign born to access the social housing units financed by the SRE program. So wow. that tells you how critical and central this program is and the research around this program is as well. Mm -hmm. What's next for you on the research? Are you doing more on the SRU law or, or other projects? Yes, um, an area of investigation that I would like to explore would be evaluating the different sort of balances between income categories in the housing that's been built since 2000. And there's no mm. available data as of yet, but that doesn't, I mean, that didn't stop me before and I really hope that that will not stop me. And then in addition to that, yeah, I would uh, continue evaluating the legacy of the SRU and combine it with larger research that I've been doing. So, for instance, with my uh, supervisor, Lance Freeman, we are uh, we have been working on comparing upzoning programs in New York and Paris. So I've done that qualitatively, but we're also doing it quantitatively just to measure, mm. you know, more ways of finding. I, I, I love the theme of those international focuses that the episodes are taking. Uh, which is trying to find, you know, solutions for problems and solutions that may originate from abroad, basically, or from this comparative perspective and look at uh, different housing markets and how they fare better or worse. Um, looking at programs that are similar, try to find tools and lessons. So that's the work I am doing. And then, yeah, next, next, you know, I'm, I'm currently in academia, very happy with that. But maybe, you know, uh, why not deputy mayor of Paris in charge of housing? <laughs> <laughs> I like Fantastic. it. I like it. All right. Professor Magda Maui, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You can read more about Professor Maui's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Pavo is there at El Pavo. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>